Well, good morning. Happy Easter. We're so glad that you joined us to worship the Lord Jesus in his resurrection. And uh, we pray today that as you rose in the morning, that in spite of our current circumstances uh, being challenging, that you found that there was a resounding hope rising in your heart. That's been my prayer for you today, that there would be this rising hope within your heart. Uh, as George read to us from 1 Peter, we have, because of Jesus's resurrection, a living hope. So if you're joining us because you're part of the West Shore Church family, uh, we pray that you are coming today in anticipation that our King is risen, that he's alive and he's on the move. And there is no disease, there is no world situation that can change that fact. It is a reality and as much today as it was yesterday and the day before. And if you're joining us because you're sort of examining and looking, I'd imagine many of you might be joining us online today because you're thinking to yourself, man, I need to understand where I can find hope and joy and peace in the midst of a circumstance like this. My hope is that you'll find in the resurrection of Jesus, the answers that you're looking for. Uh, we certainly have who believe in him. So here's, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at John chapter 20 today. We've been in a study of the gospel of John and we timed it out so that we have come to the story of Jesus's resurrection that John records in John chapter 20 on Easter Sunday. And so that's where we are. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If you don't own one, Whenever we can get back together again in person, we'd love to give you one, but we'll have the words on the screen for you. So no worries there. Here's what I want you to see. John wants to record for us the impact of the resurrection of Jesus on his first follower. So what we're gonna see is we're gonna see some of these first disciples and followers of Jesus and how they interacted with, encountered the resurrection of Jesus. And in seeing their stories, what John is wanting to help us do is understand how the resurrection might impact us still today. The, the impact upon them is so often the impact that is uh, imparted to us because of the resurrection. So John really is looking to, by showing us these first followers and the impact of the resurrection on them, show us what impact the resurrection might have on us. So we're just gonna walk through the story and I wanna show you three snapshots, three people or groups of people and how, they, how they're impacted by the resurrection. Now, before we do that though, we have to do one other thing because John is essentially doing two things in his retelling of this story of the resurrection of Jesus. The first thing that he's doing is really simple. He's simply bearing witness to the resurrection as a historical reality. In other words, he wants to say to us, this happened. It's not imagined, it's not fake, it wasn't made up. It's a historical fact, it's a historical reality. So that's the first thing John is trying to do is bear witness to that. And in doing so, he's really arguing it, it has an impact on everyone who encounters it. So you, you can't sort of escape it. And that's what I want to touch on in a minute. But then the second thing is that he wants to teach us the impact it might have on us personally. But I want to start with that idea that the resurrection has an impact on everybody because there used to be sort of a consensus in the way we thought, at least in, in our country, sort of historically, that if the resurrection of Jesus happened sort of from a logical, rational, reasonable uh, approach to it, if a being who claimed to be divine was raised from the dead, then of course, everybody needed to do something with that. You needed to respond to that in some way. Now you might choose to disbelieve it. You might choose to disagree with it. You might choose to believe that it means something other than what uh, we proclaim it means, but you have to interact with it in some way, shape or form. You have to decide what to do with it. But of course, those days have gone a bit for us. And now we live at a time where the, something like the resurrection of Jesus, rather than dealing with it as something that, okay, I have to do something with it. We have come to a place in our society where it's really easy to simply say, you know what, that's nice for someone else. And if it has an impact upon them, that's great. But ultimately, if I don't see the resurrection of Jesus as impactful to me, 
uh, in terms of creating a thriving life for me, then I can just simply sort of leave it behind. You might think of like a good restaurant recommendation, right? So uh, this is kind of how we treat the resurrection of Jesus is we think about it as like a great restaurant recommendation from a good friend who just says, oh, it, you know, it'll change your life. This place, you gotta go. Like, you know, the appetizers, the, the entrees, it's an amazing, amazing place. You, you have to experience the cuisine there. And we might think to ourselves, well, that's great. But, you know, if I don't find it to be a genre of food that I particularly like, then I, you know, I'm probably going to pass on it. And it's not going it to, it's not something I must absolutely have to deal with. And, you know, in that kind of vein of thinking, I would argue that's to some degree how we approach the resurrection of Jesus. So here's why that's important, because I don't simply want to approach, which is what we're going to do, numerous benefits of the resurrection, how the resurrection caused for the first disciples and for us causes grief to be turned to joy. Like we see with Mary Magdalene or like we see with the disciples, how it turns fear into peace, right? We see with Thomas, how it turns doubt into belief. Those are the three things we're going to look at today. But before we go there, I want to make sure we back up and think not just individualistically, like this is what the resurrection offers me, I want us to make sure that we understand that the resurrection is something that no one can get out of uh, being impacted by. You must choose to do something with it. I know that's not sort of common thought and all our educational systems and all our media and most of the entertainment we consume, the, the sort of undergirding reality and thinking is you can sort of take or leave certain truth claims based upon whether you think they'll help you thrive or not thrive. And I'm gonna argue that the resurrection of Jesus is gonna help you thrive but we have to do more than that because I, I, I would hate to communicate to you, friends, the message that you can simply leave it behind if you don't agree that it's the pathway to sort of your best life. So listen now, because John has kind of gone to great pains to make sure he's clarified this for us, that the resurrection of Jesus has an impact on more than just those who choose to believe, but on everyone. So remember in John chapter 20, verse 31, which is at the end of this chapter, let me read you there what is the main purpose of this entire book. So John has given it to us. In John chapter 20, verse 31, after telling these stories that I've just alluded to, Mary and Thomas and the disciples, in verse 31, John says this. He says, these things are written, and he's talking about all the things that have been written throughout his gospel, everything that he, in the first 19 or now 20 chapters that he's written. All these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So here's what John is saying. He's saying the very purpose for which I've written is so that you'd believe in Jesus and then in believing you would have life. And now when he uses the word life there, he's really using it both qualitatively and quantitatively, right? And he, he's saying that you would have eternal life, life that goes on forever in the presence of God, but also so that you would have life that is qualitatively different, that's better and richer and fuller and more abundant. So that's what John is getting at when he says, I, I want you to have life. And the way you're gonna have that is by believing in Jesus. It, he's presuming that his argument throughout the entire book has been, let me show you the works of Jesus culminating in his resurrection. Let me show you the words of Jesus so that you would have life in his name. So that's, that's the first thing we need to see, that John is making that presumption that the resurrection is pointing to the way to truly be alive. Now, the second thing, so you might say then, okay, well, yes, but what if John is simply saying it's one way to be alive, right? So Jesus's resurrection is one way that we can learn uh, about how to be alive. Well, he's already headed us off the path there, if you will, if you've been tracking with us through the series, in John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus made what's a pretty famous claim that a lot of people are pretty familiar with, but he said this, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. So there's that idea of life again. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So in other words, what Jesus has said uh, there and John has recorded is that he's not just one way to life, but the only way to life. So I hope you see what I'm getting at, right? That the resurrection is something everyone has to deal with. Let me just put it another way and then we'll move on. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31. So now Jesus has ascended into heaven. His disciples have been sent by him into the whole world to proclaim the truth of his life and death and resurrection. And in Acts 17, 31, Paul, one of his apostles, is preaching a sermon to a group of people who are pretty intelligent. And he he says this, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all, how? By raising him from the dead. All right, so here's what I need you to see there. Here's what Paul's argument is, is that by raising Jesus from the dead, God has made certain that there's a day of judgment coming and that judgment will be meted out or delivered through Christ. In other words, what we choose to do with Christ, his death and his resurrection will determine what happens on that day of judgment. And it will be, as Paul said here, for all people, for everyone. And the resurrection is the evidence of that is what Paul is saying. So again, I hope that helps. I I, want to make sure for those of you sort of listening in and examining faith, I want to make sure that we don't convey the message that you could perhaps just take this or leave it based on whether you think it produces a better kind of quality of life. Now, let's turn to the kind of quality of life that John is going to help us see as as we look at these stories. So let's look at John chapter 20, beginning of verse one. And the first story is the story of Mary Magdalene and how she encounters Jesus and his empty grave. So let's read the first 18 verses. You can follow along with me. Beginning in verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in, He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, 
Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So as we look at the story of Mary, John is painting a really, just a beautiful portrait of a woman who loved Jesus. That's the first thing we need to see. So so Mary's overcome by grief and Jesus is gonna use his resurrection to trade that grief for joy or turn that grief into joy. Let me show you where I get that from. So as we move through the story, the first thing that we notice is that John is really painting a picture of a woman, of a follower who loved Jesus with all her heart. A couple of things to remind us of Just in the previous chapter, you know, when Jesus' disciples had abandoned him, Mary is at the foot of the cross as Jesus dies. She's there to witness him laying down his life because she loves him. She's there before dawn to complete the burial ritual for Jesus. There there was a need for on the Sabbath day, which would have been Saturday for the Jewish people, for them to not work. So they couldn't have done the rituals. He would have died on Friday. And then on Sunday, she is before the sun has even risen, is there and ready to finish the burial rites for Jesus. We notice that in the story, when she goes and reports to Peter and John and the disciples and Peter and John run there, and then they leave again, who lingers? Who stays there? It's Mary who stays there. She stays because she can't bear to be parted from where her Lord had been. We, we hear from Mark and Luke in their gospels that one of the things that had marked Mary's life is that she had had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. So can you imagine now the love and the loyalty you would feel for someone who had done something so dramatic in your life and changed you? You can only imagine that her life would have been changed dramatically. The point is this. Mary is in deep grief. This is not a light grief. It's a deep grief. And it's a deep grief because her love for Jesus was deep. So she's overwhelmed. But here's what happens. Her grief turns to joy because she is with Jesus again. Now, get this, because as we look at the story of Mary, the thing I want you to understand is this is all happening in such a, in a moment, right? It's happening pretty quickly. And so Mary is not processing, oh, the benefits of the resurrection. Jesus has been raised. And when she realizes it's Jesus, after she has the conversation with him, she turns, he says her name. She recognizes her name on his lips. And when she hears it, she turns, she uses the title Rabboni, what what she would have called him in his earthly life. And she recognizes it's him because she hears her voice on his lips. And in saying that, then you can imagine she falls down on his feet and clings to him, which is why then he says, well, don't cling to me. He gives her sort of a job to do. But what we need to recognize there is that it's not that she's thinking through all these grand, broad implications of what what this means now that Jesus is raised from the dead. Her joy is just the fact that she's with Jesus again. She wasn't with him because he died and she is with him now again because he's alive again. And her joy is that simple. It's not complex. It's not sort of deeply rooted in ideas and theories. It's simply the fact that she she had Jesus taken away from her. And she loved him and she is grieved by that. And now the resurrection means that she is with him again. And look at what she says in verse 17, or I'm sorry, what Jesus says to her in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. In other words, what Jesus is saying there, it's a bit of a confusing phrasing, but what Jesus is saying in verse 17 is 
you don't have to hold on to me as if I'm going to immediately ascend to the father and disappear from here. I am ascending to the father. She says, go and tell my disciples that I am ascending to the father. He doesn't mean right that moment, but he means essentially I'm in the process now have post-resurrection. You're seeing me and I am going to go to the father, but you don't, he's essentially saying, you don't have to worry. I'm not going anywhere right this second. So don't cling to me. Go. I've got a job for you. I need you to go and tell the disciples I've risen from the dead. And so she, she does, she trusts that. But the point is this, she's clinging to him because she doesn't want to lose him again. She wants nothing more than to be with Jesus. I mean, recognize too, that when she was filled with unclean spirits, again, what I referred to in, in Mark and Luke, that she had had these demons driven out of her, she would have been considered unclean, ceremonially unclean among her people, which means no one could touch her or interact with her. And what she says when she thinks that she's talking to a gardener is, hey, show me where Jesus's body is and I'll go and I'll take him. In other words, she had been unclean and made clean because Jesus drove the demons out of her. And she's willing to become unclean again by touching a dead body simply because she cannot bear to be separated from her Lord, even in his death. So here's the point. Mary loves Jesus and she's grieved and she is reunited with Jesus by his resurrection. I mean, have you, do you know what it is to want to be with someone? I mean, so badly. Amanda and I laugh now, but we look back. We dated long distance when we were, um, when we were dating before we got engaged. And, and um, so I lived in Austin and she lived in Dallas and they're about four hours apart. And I, like I said, we laugh now, but we used to uh, either meet in the middle in Waco, which is right in the middle of the two towns. And we'd sort of have a weekend date, you know, before we had to go back and work during the week. And we would wait to the last possible second to leave one another's presence. I mean, we just, we, we would drive back at 1.30 in the morning, which is stupid and dangerous. Do not do this, right? But we would, we would wait to the last possible second because we just couldn't bear to be parted from one another. Now, you know, we're married 11 years now. We kind of look back and we laugh at that. But you know what? Like, that's what it is to love someone. You can't bear to be away from them. You just want, you want to be with them. You want to be in their presence, right? And that's what's, happening with Mary. Now, here's the great news of the resurrection. Let's be really simple, right? The resurrection means not just for Mary that she's no longer separated for, from Jesus, but for us, it means we're no longer separated from Jesus. Now, he is not physically living in the world with us, but do you know that because he's risen from the dead and he is alive, that we are with him wherever we go, that he's our joy, that being with him is what matters most to us. The joy of the resurrection, the reason the resurrection can take your grief and turn it into joy is because no matter what is happening, Jesus is with you. I know that may seem really simplistic. And some of you might think, well, gosh, you can't prove that. I would just tell you, I would just tell you, talk to someone who walks with Jesus. Talk to someone who loves him. We have no promise that we won't go through grief and circumstances that bring great grief, but we do have a promise that he never leaves. Why could Jesus make the promise that he would never leave us or forsake us? because not even death could separate him from us because he's alive and not dead. Now, right now we experience his presence through his spirit who is in us, who believe. One day we will experience his presence in eternal worship and fellowship with him and with the father and with the spirit in the new kingdom. Grief is transformed into joy by the nearness of Jesus. That's the simplest way I know how to put it. Grief is transformed into joy by the nearness of Jesus. The psalmist in Psalm 73 goes through this whole long 
um, sort of grieving really of saying, man, I'm looking at these wicked people and they seem to be thriving and none of this makes any sense. And I, I don't know what to do with the fact, God, that you allow these wicked people to, to have such comfortable life circumstances. He actually says at one point in, in Psalm 73, their eyes bulge with fatness. In other words, they just, they have an abundance of everything. They're overflowing with consumption, right? But then he says, then I went into God's presence. And then I went into the temple and all of a sudden everything kind of made sense. And he doesn't mean I understood why God was allowing this or why God was doing that. The psalmist is simply saying, I got, I got near God and that's what mattered. All of a sudden my grief, my anxiety, my turmoil, something about being in his presence changed it. Being in, in worship in his sanctuary, in his temple. He actually closes the Psalm right towards the end. The psalmist in Psalm 73 actually says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Psalms. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is what turns grief into joy. And the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that he will always be near, he'll always be present. Okay, hopefully that's fair enough. Now, let's look then at the second story. That's Mary's story. And Mary shows us that Jesus's resurrection turns grief into joy. The second story is the story of the disciples sort of together, all but Thomas. Thomas isn't in this story because he's not there. But the next story is a short one. It's just verses 19 through 23. So I want to read those again. What we're going to find is that the resurrection of Jesus for the disciples now turns their fear into peace. Let's read it together. Verse 19 says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So there's the fear part. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, get this second time now, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. All right, so a couple observations here. Number one, the disciples are huddled in fear because they're fearful of the Jews, it says, who have just crucified their Lord. Now, this is a pretty, I mean, this is sort of a standard uh, reaction you would imagine. Given the, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? given the sort of injustice of Jesus's conviction and condemnation, you can imagine that they're a little worried, right? They know they've done nothing wrong, but that didn't stop Jesus from being crucified by these same people. Why wouldn't they come after them? So you can see the fear is, the fear is legitimate, right? So they're huddled in fear. Jesus in his resurrected body is apparently able to pass through walls because the door is locked. And John is definitely making that point to say, this is a resurrected being that's unlike, that is both like who he was before, but also unlike who he was before in some very important ways. And so Jesus passes through the wall and joins them. Then he offers them peace twice. Now, let me point you back again to John chapter 14, verse 27. And again, earlier in the series, we saw there that Jesus said these words. He said, my peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. So when Jesus comes into the room and says to the disciples, peace be with you twice, he says it once, shows them his hands, shows them his side the scars, in other words, is evidence like I'm, I'm a living being and this is me. I'm the one who died and I am the one who's now with you here in the room. It's not someone else, it's me. That's the, that's the point of showing the scars. Then he says, peace be with you again, before he sort of gives them a mandate, an authority that he's gonna anoint them with. He's gonna impart to them. 
when he's saying, peace be with you, he's fulfilling the promise of John 14. He's in essence saying to them, I promised you, I told you, I told you, I would give you peace. And I don't give as the world gives. I give peace and that peace lasts and it stays with you. And it keeps battling against the fear that you feel. And you will feel, feel fear. We feel fear. It's a real thing. It's not, it's not as if those who follow Jesus should never experience fear. We should just be so stalwart in faith that fear is not a reality for us. No, far from it. We experience fear because we live in a world that is broken and ruptured in numerous places. And there's difficulties that cause real fear, but, but that fear is dealt with and it's quieted as it rises in our hearts by the peace that Christ has to give. Now, a couple other points here in the text. The receiving of the spirit here is really a symbolic act foreshadowing what happens, what's gonna happen in Acts chapter two. So Jesus isn't actually imparting the Holy Spirit to the disciples there, but what he's doing is he's saying in Acts chapter two, we know the spirit's gonna descend. He's gonna come into the world because the spirit comes after Jesus ascends. So that's all the promises of the spirit teach us that that's when the spirit comes. So what Jesus is doing by breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, he's giving a symbolic act, sort of foreshadowing what's gonna come in the next week or two uh, into their lives as the Holy Spirit's gonna descend upon them. And that's when we're gonna find a really a new revelation for them as the Spirit is imparted to them in terms of the power that they experience and the, and the peace that they experience in place of the fear that they have. So the message and all that, and then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. Uh, if you withhold forgiveness, it's, it's withheld. He doesn't mean there that the disciples are gonna go around and say, I'm gonna forgive you. I'm not gonna forgive you. He means that by the preaching of the gospel, wherever they go, that those who hear it and respond to it will either receive forgiveness or have it withheld based upon their response to that gospel. But the message essentially for the disciples is this, it's authority, it's power. He's imparting a power and an authority to them. So what do, we, what do we make? Let's link those now because in his interaction with the disciples, he goes into this inner room where they're hiding and he says, peace be with you. And then he imparts power to them through the promise of the Holy Spirit and that symbolic act through a declaration that he's sending them in his name. They're his messengers. In other words, when they show up and they speak, they don't just speak on their own authority. They speak now with the authority of the risen King. The one who's resurrected, that's the one they speak for. They're, he's there. He, they are his messenger. So, Here's what we learn from that. If you want to bring those two things together, their fear turns to peace because the resurrection means they have a power that they didn't previously have. In other words, peace replaces fear because the resurrection gives power. It's the power of the resurrection that causes fear to go away. In other words, when you recognize that you are now imbued or given authority as a follower, as a messenger, as a servant of the risen king, and you know, he's resurrected. All of a sudden, the giants don't look so giant. All of a sudden, the hardships don't look so hard. Again, I'm not saying they're not realities. They are, but nothing compares with the resurrection. What could make us afraid? What could make us shrink back? Our king is risen. And that risen king has come and said, I give you my power. I give you my authority. Now, granted, the apostles here have a unique kind of authority as the first apostles of Jesus but that doesn't mean we don't also have a power that's imparted to us because we also have the spirit and it's the spirit that is the vehicle of the power that comes with the resurrection. So when he says, I receive the spirit, he's saying, receive my authority and my power upon you and in you. It's the spirit that brings that. And that same spirit lives in us, which is why in Romans chapter eight, we find those words where it says to us, 
if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, the resurrection power of the spirit is now in us in the way that it was in Jesus and in the apostles. So what that means for us, what that means for us is the presence of the spirit gives us power to do work that God gives us to do. So let me go back to something we've talked about in this series. And it's a simple concept. So if you, if you haven't been tracking with us, don't worry. Here's the real, we've said a numerous, numerous times, whenever Jesus has wanted to impart peace to his disciples because they've had a troubled heart or a troubled spirit, part of what he's done every time is point them to the fact that they need to serve someone else. They need to be about the work that he's given them to do in serving someone else. And one of the things we've taken from that is the idea that when we sort of get our attention off ourselves and serve others, that's a part of how we begin to experience peace. Well, why is that? Link that to what we've just said here. Because as we serve others, we experience the power of the spirit moving through us. Whether that be the simplest act of trying to be a good spouse, trying to be a good roommate, or it be the, the greatest gospel mission, the most risky endeavor, whatever it may be, when we pursue it from the simplest thing to the greatest thing, so that we would serve someone else, we experience his power flowing through us. And when we experience that power flowing through us, we're reminded that the resurrection is real, that it has given us a power, right? I'm, I'm living this out, I'm doing it. And in doing it, I'm reminded, oh yeah, like I actually am effective. I actually have power given to me. And when we experience that, we're reminded that the things that perhaps caused us fear once might not be causes for such fear as we imagine they might've been. I hope that makes sense. So that's, that's the second story. The third one is short. And I just want to look at it briefly. It's Jesus and Thomas. Beginning in verse 24, we find this with Thomas. Now, Thomas, if, um, if the disciples had their fear turned to peace, and if Mary had her grief turned to joy, then what Thomas is going to have is he's going to have his doubt turned to belief. And I really would love for those of you who are not followers of Jesus at this point in your lives to hear Thomas's story. Here's what it says, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and, and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So I hope you get a sense of how skeptical he is. He's not just saying, I wanna see it. I actually wanna put my hands on him to prove that this is a reality. That's how skeptical Thomas seems to be at this point. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. By the way, there's a great little nugget there. Notice that after even receiving peace from the Lord the first time, the disciples are still in a locked room. Sometimes it takes time for peace to replace fear. It's not an instantaneous process, right? So eight days later, they're still a bit steeped in that fear. They're still wrestling with that. So let that be a comfort. It's not as if the expectation is that, oh, I know the, the Lord has risen and now I never experienced fear. Or the second I experience it, it's just put to rest immediately. The second I experience the power of the resurrection through the spirit. No, it, sometimes it's a process, right? So then it says this. Then he said to Thomas, this is Jesus. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, so simple, simple point from this story here. We see Thomas's skepticism. We see his ser serious lack of belief, right? That he is not easily won over. That's a great reminder, by the way, this is not a gullible group of people. Historically, sometimes people point out, oh, they would have believed in a resurrection. It would have been so easy for them. 
These are not the gullible people that perhaps sometimes with, with our modern perspective, we imagine them to be. Thomas is every bit as skeptical as probably any one of you have ever been. And Jesus shows up and he's merciful. He says, go ahead, put your hand in my side, touch the scars because I want you to believe. That's how much Jesus wants him to believe that he, he'll entertain Thomas's skepticism. And he entertains your skepticism, not as if to just put up with it, but because he wants you to know him. He wants you to believe in him. And so he'll take your hard questions. He'll take your skepticism. He'll take that hard, that, that unbelief and he'll, he'll talk with you in it. He'll walk with you in it. So here's the thing. Now that Thomas is seen and touched, it's the historical reality of the resurrection that turns Thomas's doubt to unbelief. Now he knows this has happened. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not, it's not sort of like he didn't really die and he just looked like he died. No, he died and he rose. And it's the resurrection that for Thomas changes everything. So go back to what we said at the beginning. The resurrection impacts everyone, everyone. It's not just a matter of whether you think it can produce a nice life for you or not. It's a historical reality. We have apostles after this fact who once were filled with fear, now going to martyrs' deaths, proclaiming the resurrection and not recanting. We have Jewish authorities who are unable to produce a body. The entire Christian movement and church would not exist today if they had only produced a body and said, nope, he's not alive, he's dead. There's thing like the thing after thing like that, that point to this historical veracity, the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus. Thomas sees the historical reality of it and his doubt is turned to belief. And so my friends, that's what I would say to you. Jesus invites you to see the historical reality of his resurrection and to not treat it just as something that seems nice, but to treat it as something that now calls you to believe in him, as John says, so that you would believe and in believing that you would have life in his name. That's what John is wanting you to see. That's what Jesus is teaching us through Thomas's story. So let me ask a question then. As I said, John is bearing witness so that you would see the reality of the resurrection and that your doubt would be turned to belief or perhaps Christian so that your doubt in God's love, your doubt in God's provision, your doubt in God's presence with you, that that doubt would be turned into belief, turned into faith. Not just for those who are, who are not in Christ and haven't yet believed in him, but for all of us that doubt would be turned to belief. But for those of you who don't believe yet in Jesus, let me ask this question. Would you be willing to ask if whatever keeps you from faith in Jesus, so maybe it's the problem of suffering and evil, maybe it's the hypocrisy of Christians that you've encountered, whatever that thing is that keeps you from believing that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected son of God who says you can have life in his name, but in his name only and alone, whatever keeps you from believing in him, is it bigger than the resurrection? Would you be willing to ponder that and just compare the two to say if the resurrection happened, if it's historically verifiable, if it's reasonable, this thing that has kept me from believing in him, is this thing really bigger than that resurrection? I just invite you to ponder that a little bit. Consider that. I think it's worth, you know, on Easter Sunday, right? Just, in, you know, amuse a pastor here for, if you will, for the afternoon and just ponder, just ponder a little bit that reality. I, I can't imagine that whatever it is that has kept you from believing in Jesus is bigger than the reality of a resurrected king. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. I pray that as we've looked at God's word, yeah, that it, that it would just, that it would plant itself in you. So the question for all of us as we conclude then is what will we do with the resurrection of Jesus for believer and for unbeliever? For those of you who believe, those of you who don't, 
Question is, what will you do with the resurrection of Jesus? Will you take it, take hold of it, so that you might live a life, as we saw here, of joy instead of grief, of peace instead of fear, and of belief instead of doubt? Let me pray for us. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we have come to see because you opened our eyes, not because we were smart or wise or good or more intelligent, but because you, Holy Spirit, opened our eyes to see that Jesus is God's son. He lived a perfect life. He died for no sin of his own, but for mine, my sin, the sin of my brothers and sisters, the sin of those who are listening now, who have not believed yet, for each of us, his death for our death and his life for our life. And so we believe, Lord Jesus, that you didn't stay in the grave, but that you rose and we are filled with joy. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're gonna conclude our time together with a song of worship. So you can stand in your homes and join us and let's worship the Lord together.